Hey, Julie. Hey, Lisa. How's it going? It's going well. We are enjoying here is um, Thursday in February and we are enjoying an 80 degree day here, which we were just saying was like heavenly and a little bit of a tease because it's going to go back to cold weather the rest of this week and into this weekend. But um, just a nice little taste of spring and a reminder that, that spring is coming. Yeah, absolutely. It felt like a little vacation today, which was so awesome and well-deserved. So um, did you run today in this heat and how did that impact you? So I did, but it was actually um, cold when I went out because I went earlier today. I had to get out a little bit earlier and it was still cold. And I was all excited for a nice warm day and thought, okay, I'll get to wear shorts and short sleeves. And um, uh, it was still in the forties when I went out. So I actually ended up wearing gloves and our ear warmers um, that I did take off by the time I finished, it was it was warming up. So I did not feel it. And I think um, for anyone who went early, it was probably fine, but certainly uh, later in the day. Um, and it's just a good reminder, um, Alex, you know, my son rode home, rode his bike home from school and he was saying, you know, how it felt, it felt a lot harder today because it was the first hot day he had, you know, he had been out for a ride. So just a good reminder that um, our bodies are definitely not acclimated to the heat and you will feel it and your body will react. So for anyone who did run out in the heat today and kind of felt that, um, that uh, those effects, it's, it, it's, it, it, we are definitely not used to it. Oh yeah, for sure. I felt it. I mean, obviously I'm not running these days and I just was out walking today and I definitely felt it. So, um, I'm not complaining though. I'm not complaining. I'll take it. No, no, not at all. Not at all. Um, so yeah, speaking of heat, we had a really good conversation in our episode this week. We spoke with a veteran guest, Kelsey Beckman Pontius, who is a registered dietitian and the owner of Meteor Nutrition. And Kelsey has been on our podcast before, and we asked her back because she is so great at, at simplifying and breaking down nutrition for runners. And with a little less than two months to go until Boston, we wanted to have her back on just to provide a roadmap for runners, particularly running Boston. But this roadmap can truly be used for all marathons. And, and as always, Kelsey is a wealth of knowledge, but most importantly, it's practical stuff. So while she explains why we need to fuel when we need to fuel, which at this point, so many runners know there's so much good information out there. What Kelsey does that I think is so great is she's so clear and convincing. And, and what I mean by that is when Kelsey explains something, it's not just, you should take a gel every 30 to 35 minutes, but it's here are the ramifications. If you don't, and this is why it's important and think about how much better you could run. If you actually implemented a nutrition plan now and practiced it. So our goal this week and having Kelsey on is to really emphasize to everyone out there listening, how important it is is to dial in nutrition now, not next month, but now. So by race day, you really know what works for you and your body in all types of weather conditions. And we touch on that as well, um, because certainly when it's hot and when it's cold, uh, the way our body processes nutrition is different. And Kelsey touches on that. So just a reminder for those who may not know Kelsey, she again is the owner of Meteor Nutrition, through which she provides nutrition services to runners of all levels. She grew up playing competitive soccer and eventually ended her career as a D1 soccer player to become an elite distance runner. Uh, Kelsey has so many running accomplishments. And one of note is that she will be running in the U.S. Olympic marathon trials next year in Orlando. And we're so excited to see her run there um, and just so impressive. 
And Kelsey has a terrific Instagram account under sports dietitian Kelsey, where she shares a lot of nutrition advice and fun diagrams and reels and things like that, that really help break down um, why it's so important to fuel. And then also some important nutrition myths, which you and I both love it when, when dietitians dispel a good nutrition myth. So yeah, we're really excited to have her on this week to talk all things nutrition, particularly as it pertains to the Boston marathon. Yeah. Kelsey is a good reminder of how important it is to have a, an expert, um, who is trained and, uh, properly certified and has the, has the right credentials, um, and, and how you have to be really careful when you're looking, um, you know, with any, with respect to anything. Um, but when you're looking on social media and you're taking your advice, um, from social media, really looking at where it's coming from. And, um, Kelsey talks a little bit at, at the beginning about, you know, what, what, um, you know, what uh, qualifications you should look for, what um, what certifications you should be looking for, um, and that goes for you know for anything. If you're looking for um, a, a physical therapist or a running coach or a physician, you really want to look at um, who they've worked with, what their what their um, you know their credentials are, um, and you really want to be careful because there is a lot of information out there and it can be overwhelming. And, and I think Kelsey is a a great example of a, of a really good resource, and I use it use her as kind of not my primary resource, but you know, when I need um, really sound advice, I look to what she what she's published and what she's posting, and we ask her questions. Um, so having a resource like that in your in your toolbox is is really important. So um, I always really, you know, when we finished uh, interviewing Kelsey for this, we both said this is an episode that everyone should listen to, and this is one that people may listen to multiple times um, as a reminder and as a refresher. So I, I think of, of, you know, I love all of our podcast episodes, but this is a really useful, useful one. Oh, for sure. And uh, I, you reminded me, I used Kelsey before my surgery and she really helped me um, dial in my nutrition so that I increased my protein and just made sure that I had something to focus on that I could control during a time that I was really nervous about what was to come. And she really helped me dial that in. And I so appreciated her support during that time. And nutrition is so important to recovery. And uh, particularly when you're recovering from a surgery. So it's, again, um, sometimes we overlook uh, nutrition. Sometimes we overlook mental strategies. We also just had a call this week with our runners. Um, we did a, a coaching call um, uh, with Aisha Rafai, who is a mental skills coach. And that's just another area um, of, you know, one of those um often overlooked aspects of training and um, nutrition is, is one of those two that we don't really um, understand how important it is to our training and our success as athletes um, until you practice it. And like you referred to at the beginning and like Kelsey mentions, um, you know, a lot of people can, can uh, ignore nutrition or not really put a lot of thought into it and maybe get away with it, but how much better would they be and how much better would they perform and would they recover and would they feel and really just function in life if they really put um, the time and effort into, into dialing that in. Absolutely. So without further ado, let's turn it over to Kelsey. And, and like I said, I think this is an episode that will we'll get a lot of listens. So we appreciate Kelsey spending time with us and um, let's turn it over to her. All right. Have a great week, Lisa. You too, Julie. Bye. Bye. 
Kelsey Pontius, welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast again. We are so thrilled to have you back and thank you so much for joining us today to help us better prepare our runners for Boston and other spring marathons through proper fueling. So for those who don't already know you, um, why don't we start off by providing a little bit of background about you and um, what you do. Yeah, awesome. I'm so excited to be here again and um, talk about such a fun topic. So thanks so much, Julie and Lisa, for having me. Um, so I, Kelsey Pontius, I'm a registered dietitian and certified specialist in sports dietetics. Um, I actually started my, my athletic journey as a soccer player. I started playing when I was three or four years old and my childhood goal was to play division one, um, soccer and somewhere that, um, along there I got injured. Julie knows a lot about this injury. I tore my ACL, um, as a high schooler and, um, that was earth shattering shattering to me um, because um, it was at a pivotal point where I, all of my friends and peers were getting recruited and I, I tore it during the most important recruiting years. And so I was really ambitious and trying to figure out how can I recover faster? And we did have the internet when I was in high school. Um, and so I started Googling. Um, okay. That makes me laugh. By the way, we did have the internet in high school. We can't I know. Relate. Well, no social media, but internet. I'm like, so old, but not that old. Um, but so my parents, you know, they, they just like a lot of parents trying to give me every resource and tool in the book to, um, for me to be successful. And they just didn't know how to help me. And I think that in the early two thousands, there just wasn't this connection between, performance nutrition and um, how athletes should be eating, or at least if there was, I was completely, um, I was oblivious to it. So I started Googling things, the information that I found on the internet, um, I would say it's probably what you would find now, maybe now would be worse, but I didn't come across the information that now as an expert, I know that I needed at that time, but at least that light bulb was sparked of I understood that there was a role in what we were eating um, and how I could heal and how I could be a better athlete. So then fast forward, I ended up playing college soccer and still a little bit puzzled. I'm like, okay, I'm a freshman. I want more minutes. I, you know, only get to play when we're winning and I want more minutes when it counts. And so I started observing what my teammates were eating, which isn't something that's necessarily a healthy thing to do, but I think it's a natural thing to do. And um, especially the, the players that played my position and were having a lot of success. And it was all over the place. Like we had girls, you know, eating a sloppy Joe and Doritos before the game and they played incredible. Um, and then we had girls eating salads. And so I was still, you know, in a place where I'm like, okay, I still don't feel like I've, I've found the answer. I remember in college, like even, you know, playing division one that I think we had one conversation about nutrition. It wasn't by a registered dietitian, but this individual is a professor brought in the food pyramid. Um, so now I am dating myself, <laughs> um, back to the food pyramid. And I still like, she gave this feel, I was super interested in it. Um, however, I still didn't understand what to eat once I got in the cafeteria and what to put on my plate and what that meant in real food. And so 
um, fast forward, I am like, okay, I should probably study nutrition dietetics. I didn't even know that that was a major. And along with that time was kind of the time that I started to, um, find running. I actually started to become a runner because I wanted friends when I stopped playing soccer. I'm like, wow, I don't have built-in friends anymore. And so running is such a great sport, um, because it allows an adult setting to make friends in like the place of play. Um, which isn't, you know, that's really unique to the sport. So I, I loved running and, um, yeah, I got to running and I'm like, wow, I look like a soccer player. I look really strong. Um, and the girls that I'm racing against are half my size. What's going on. And, um, I noticed, I was like, well, I can run as fast as them. So why are they so small? That's not something I had to deal with in soccer. We were all like pretty strong. Um, we didn't really think about, or I never thought about size. Um, and so that was kind of my first memory of thinking, Ooh, like maybe, you know, I should manipulate my eating or whatever. And then, um, simultaneously I was like learning nutrition in the academic setting and, um, yeah, there was even more curiosity. And so, um, I finished my nutrition dietetics degree. And since then I've, um, certified in sports nutrition, um, I'm the sports dietitian for the athletic, for the Atlanta track club. And I work with, um, three division one pro college programs and I work with, um, one-on-one -on -one clients too. Amazing. And just, um, clue everyone in on, um, what you've accomplished in your running and what your next race goals are. Yeah. So, uh, I, in 2020, I um, qualified for the 2020 U.S. Marathon Olympic Trials and um, requalified, had the opportunity to requalify for the 2024. And so I'm super excited. It's in Florida, um, which is where I'm from. So um, yeah, that will be fun. And I feel like I'll be, if anything, used to the heat and humidity. Well, we're excited because um, we actually decided to go this year. So we'll be there to cheer you on, Kelsey. And so just let us know if you need anything and we'll be we'll, we'll be your wing women if you need anything along the course. We know you'll have tons of supportive family and friends because it's in Florida, but we will be there to cheer you on as well. We're super proud of you and impressed with all you do. Thank you. No, 26.2 miles is a long time. I need all the people that I can get. <laughs> you bet. Kelsey, yeah. let me just... Oh, let me just, before we move on, I just want to um, emphasize one of, you know, kind of something that you um, mentioned, but I just want to want to hit on it a little more because it's something that's important to us as coaches. You're a registered dietitian and you mentioned, you know, your training that you have. Talk to us a little bit about what a registered dietitian is versus a nutritionist or, you know, what the distinction is. Oh, this question is normally where registered dietitians bring out their claws, but yeah. um, <laughs> well, it's very important to us when we have, you know, runners come to us, they say, well, I'm going to talk to a nutritionist. And we say, tell us a little bit more about like, you know, who is this person and what are their qualifications? So tell us like what, you know, what, what people should be looking for when they're looking for um, advice from somebody. Yeah, that's, that's such a really good question. And I think that, um, my passion behind this is kind of goes with some of the damage I've seen done with athletes and um, following nutrition plans that were well-intended by the way, um, and not meant to cause damage. But I think that what registered dietitian credential um, allows for is um, it requires you to get a four-year degree, your bachelor's degree in nutrition and dietetics. And then as of, as of next year, actually, they will require you to have a master's degree um, in order to obtain the registered dietitian um, credential. So after undergraduate, there's um, right now there's two routes. You can start a super, or you have to apply to an internship. It's super competitive, not in the sense that they think that dietitians need to be, you know, insanely intelligent, but there just wasn't enough, um, 
preceptors to facilitate these rotations that because they're not, nobody's getting paid to facilitate. So naturally it created like, you know, this really competitive um, atmosphere where only, you know, students with 4.0s that, you know, are really volunteering a lot and have these really awesome experiences getting into these internships. And I don't think it needs to be that competitive, but it just fell that way. Um, and then after you do your supervised practice, which I think of it as like a residency for dietitians, um, where you do these like clinical settings, a community setting, um, food service management. So I had a really cool um, um, internship and I got a lot of control over the rotations that I got. So my my like elective one, I got to work underneath the Orlando Magic dietitian and she was the UCF dietitian too. So she, she really pushed me and gave me a lot of opportunities to be independent and put my work out there. And so I'm really grateful for that. Um, and then after that, you have to take an exam you have to take continuing ed and then to get the certified sports dietitian, that's actually, I thought that test was a lot harder than my RD exam. Um, you have to practice for five years in the sports setting um, and then improve that you are able to, and then it's another exam. And then you have to take that exam every five years. Wow. That's a lot. <laughs> so, so that's important. So those letters RD or RDN, I think it is really signify a lot of education and experience bottom line. Very good. Thank you. Lots Thank of science. <laughs> okay. So we're going to talk in this episode a lot about Boston, but the information and the questions we're going to ask you, of course, apply to any marathon. But the reason we wanted to focus the episode today on Boston is because we know so many of our listeners are running Boston and also Boston is unique because it is a race that does not start until for some people 11 some people 930, it depends on your wave. And as a result, there are a lot of interesting accommodations we all need to make to be able to fuel our bodies appropriately. So why don't we get started first, Kelsey, and we're about seven weeks out from Boston. And for those who are running, but they're not quite running consistent 20 milers or whatever their benchmark is for their long run, and they feel like they haven't quite ramped up to their quote, high mileage weeks. What do you say to those runners who aren't full out practicing their nutrition right now? Oh man. So I think that, um, on race day, as you ladies know, there's a mixed bag of circumstances. And my coach always says this, it's like the Muhammad Ali quote, like, um, at some point you're going to get punched in the face and it is so unbelievably true on race day. Um, I've gotten to where I race. I'm like, what is it going to be today? Um, so nutrition is actually one of those things that we can control. Um, but we, we have to know how our body's going to respond to nutrition and it works two ways. So number one, we want to trial and error our nutrition. So we have more confidence around what will work, but in the other direction is our body can actually adapt to the nutrition that we're putting into it. I think, um, on one of, um, the presentations I did with you ladies, I showed like a really nerdy diagram of, um, the carbohydrate receptors and within the GI tract. And I showed you the difference between, um, a GI tract that hadn't been exposed to a lot of carbohydrates or fueling during our running versus one that um, we had trialed nutrition. And there were these transporters um, that knew what to do with the nutrition that we were putting in our body. Um, so with seven weeks to go, I mean, we have to think, um, I know this because my husband's training right now and I'm like cracking the whip on him right now. He, he likes to sleep in. Um, that 
I'm like, really, you have five weeks because if we're doing like an honest taper or however long your taper is, then we have, you know, only so many weeks. And so um, we want to practice it. And then, um, you know, as you know, with Boston, it can be freezing cold. It can be blazing hot. And so with practicing it more, you have the opportunity to practice in different conditions, because if every weekend is different, then it's just a new challenge to see how your body might respond. So if it's warm on race day, you're like, okay, I did better. Um, I thought on my practice or training run, I could have utilized more sodium. So you just have a little bit more information about, um, about what you need. So Kelsey, what, what does that look like then now? Like when you're telling your husband, like, come on, get on this now. And when we're advising our runners, get on this now, what is, what does that mean? Does that mean only during your long runs, only during your, you know, um, track workouts? Does it mean the night before your long runs? Like where, how does that extend to like how in practical, you know, your week of training, how does that look? So the first place that I like to start with my clients is making sure that we're utilizing a concept I use with our daily nutrition called performance plates. And what that is like real quick is a breakdown of how, what are the ratios between protein, carbohydrates, fat, and color that we're having on a plate. Um, the more we move, the more carbohydrates we need. Um, and so that's a general explanation of that. And why I feel so passionately about that is no on-course nutrition is going to save our lives if we're under-fueling during our days. So I would say, like, make sure that your daily nutrition is, is matched up. Um, to answer your question specifically, start practicing what it is you want to eat before your longer runs, like the night before. Start practicing with as many runs as you can um, what, what you want to eat before you, you run, um, or you race. So like just getting the familiarity of different foods, um, before you run. And I would say like a couple of times a week, or at least once a week, like using that timing of when you're going to eat, um, as a variable that to strengthen your fueling practice. But I would say like having your familiar foods down as many times during the week as you can. And then for fueling during, um, I would really, you know, any run over 75 minutes, I'm practicing, like, for example, yesterday, um, I'm not specifically training for a marathon right now, but I know I'm going to eventually run a marathon. I did a three, two, one workout. And I was actually thinking of this when I was doing it. I'm like, so many people would like laugh in my face if they knew that, like, I just fueled for a six mile workout, but on the other end, my coach doesn't always give me long runs like at pace or whatever. So I'm like, this is actually a really great opportunity where I'm running fast and need to like practice this fueling and getting away from the, this is the word that I hear a lot of my athletes saying, I didn't need it, or I didn't think I need it. And like switching that mindset of like, how well can I practice this? And, um, can I practice and get better at this and not always operating in the sense of, did I really need it? That's a great point. We get that a lot of, you know, I, I was fine on that 16 mile run without nutrition. I didn't need it today. And we say, but that was a missed opportunity yeah. to practice. And what we try to explain to our runners is that you may not need it when you're running conversational, easy pace. Um, maybe you would have felt better. Maybe you'll recover better if you had it. You may not need it. You didn't feel like you, you know, fell apart. But as soon as you start running harder and your body's working harder, it's burning glycogen faster. And yep. you will need it on race day. And then your body's not going to know what to do with it because you didn't practice. So I think that's a really, we hear that a lot of, well, I didn't need it. Like I was, I was fine. Um, so that's a good point. Thanks for making that. And Kelsey, you also brought up a good point when you said, 
I think people would have laughed at me if they had known that I was using nutrition for my six mile run. And I think that's a great point is sometimes we lean into what our peers are doing. And if nobody is taking fuel for a, a shorter track workout or for an easy 75 minute run in the middle of the week at 5 a.m., then you feel like you don't need it because everyone else is fine. Why would I need it? Um, but to your point, think about how much better you'll feel after the run, how much better you'll recover. And maybe during the run, you don't feel a difference, but those, those little things add up. And if there's a way to convince folks that just because everyone else is doing it doesn't mean it's the right way. And you can introduce something different for you that works. Um, what do you tell your uh, clients when they talk to you about things like this, when they feel like no one else is doing something and you're trying to convince them to actually use fuel more? I think that it all goes back to confidence and just realizing I work with so many different humans and their nutrition. And I find like the little pain points and so many different people when it comes to nutrition and kind of this fear around fueling. And I always remind my clients, I'm like, you would be so surprised how many runners are dealing with their internal battles around fueling, even people that you would never suspect because maybe they look a certain way or whatever, um, are having their own back and forths about some of these, um, these questions that come up around fueling. And so I think that it goes back to confidence of like, this is your plan. And then I always like to use the filter for myself, for my clients. Like, how do I want to feel? And doing that workout yesterday, it's one of my favorite workouts, three mile, two mile, one mile. I think it's so fun because you can speed up during it. Um, I wanted it so badly to go well. And I wanted to like get confidence from that workout because I love it. And so from that, it's like a no brainer of like, what can I do to make it go better? Um, and what can I do to really you know, fueling during, and this is something that, um, Lisa kind of said, you know, fueling during helps you recover better too, because your body's not having to work so hard to find you energy. Um, so, you know, you're not going to have, um, such serious cases of delayed onset mu muscle soreness, and you're going to pop out of that workout better. I'm also thinking like, okay, get away from needing. And like, how do I, be able to afford more happy, healthy miles because running so much more enjoyable when you're not super sore and not super lethargic. Yeah, that, that's a, a great point. Um, there's something else I was going to say. Oh, I, what I, you mentioned before too, I think was, is really important that no on-course nutrition is going to save, you know, it's, uh, you know, save your, if you, if you haven't fueled well more generally. Um, so, so talk a little bit more about um, you know, you talked about the performance plate, but at seven weeks out from, from Boston, and we're really starting to get into now in the next few weeks, we're really getting to peak mileage. What should runners be doing outside of their, uh, you know, their runs that we're just talking about, like during their runs, what should they be doing? Um, you know, shifting that percentage of carbs, but what, what are they looking to eat? What are some kind of practical, um, suggestions for when they're, when you said, like you said, you went into the dining hall and you didn't know what to put on your plate. If we're like going to go eat lunch after we get off this call, what are we looking to put on our plate when we're at a point, you know, I'm at a point where I'm going to be entering next week, probably starting to get into the higher mileage weeks as, as we get towards Boston. What does that look like? 
I love that. Um, so I'm going to start super simple at first because it's such a, uh, it's like the rule of the 80, 20, like 20% of your effort gets you 80% of your results. Right. Um, so a big thing that I look for when I look at like a diet recall, what my clients are eating when I first get them is that they are eating a performance peel, a perform performance plate at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, and they're not going a, a crazy long time. And what I define as a crazy long time is more than two or four hours of waking hours without food. And so a performance plate again, is that we're eating carbohydrates, protein, fat, and color. Um, and so we're having at least three of those per day and that we're filling in with snacks. You know, it, it, when we start to stretch over, you know, I would say every two to four hours, a lot of my clients find that the happy place is three hours for them. Um, so if you're not doing that, that is an amazing place to start. Um, so if you're skipping meals for whatever reason, or, um, there's something in your schedule that's getting you, um, away from a meal as you know it, then a lot of times just thinking, like I had a client the other day, I was like, she loves cliff bars. I'm like, oh my goodness. Like, can we think of 12 million different options besides cliff bars? Yes, but you are here for a cliff bar. So that's carbohydrates, a little bit of protein and some fat. Like, where do we need to fill in these gaps so that you can have your cliff bar? And so we came up with a yogurt and a piece of fruit with it. And so, and her big thing is that she didn't have time for a sit down meal. And so, but she's training right now. And so um, that being said, like, yes, like, could somebody come up with a million different examples that they would think was better? Probably, but was that not going to be the thing that stick? Yeah, also, yeah. Um, so best place to start right there, performance plates, eating every two to four hours. Um, once you get that, like this is more where like, okay, it's peak weeks. Um, you can start and you've mastered performance plates. Um, then you can start playing with the ratios. Um, the biggest thing that changes protein stays pretty constant. The biggest thing that changes for the most part is the ratio between those carbohydrates, those energy providing foods versus like how much space on your plate are fruits and vegetables taking up, which is a nice, um, a really nice transition, mostly because you know, fruits and vegetables, they have a lot of fiber. We still need them. Um, but the more we're running, you know, the more that we're having blood move away from our GI tract and stuff like that. And, you know, we don't want to get GI issues. So actually reducing that can be a little bit more comfortable and fiber makes us feel super full. Um, and we need more carbohydrates and running can suppress our appetite too. So um, we have to work with our appetite. So reducing those vegetables, filling up more of our plate with those carbohydrates. I always say like, if you're running and think about your week in total, don't wake up and say, today's a rest day. And then tomorrow's hard. So do I, you know, barely eat carbs today. And then tomorrow, do I really get after it? I like to think of like a week as a whole. And so I always say, if you're running um, 40 plus miles per week, then um, making at least half of your plate, those carbohydrates or those energy per providing foods. Um, if you're not running 40 miles a week, then you can still do that the day before your big workouts, the day of your workout, the day before your big long runs, the day of your um, big long runs. If you're kind of in that range of like 20 to, or 15 to 20 up to 40, then um, I call that a moderate performance plate. So that's about um, you know, a third of a plate of those carbohydrates and then like equal parts protein and, um, veggies. And of course, like I didn't mention fat in either of those examples, but, um, fat, a lot of times, like, you know, we don't always see it on a plate. It's in oils and, um, animal protein and so forth. But if you're, you don't know where the fat is, then for sure, um, add a little bit. I really like that you mentioned rest day and looking at your week as a whole, because, 
uh, logically, when you aren't doing any activity on a day, you're not as hungry. So you probably inadvertently, or maybe some folks intentionally eat less. And to look at your week overall and understand that everything plays into your success and your running miles for the entire week helps. Our bodies don't know whether we ate something on a Saturday or Sunday as we're executing a run a few days later. Um, but to that end, to those who are unintentionally calorie conscious, even as they're chaining. And there, there are a lot of folks, let's be realistic, the, the culture we live in, that is how folks roll. And we understand that. What do you say to those people that are thinking, well, I ran a track workout this morning on a random Tuesday and I consumed two gels. So that's 200 calories. And then do I subtract that from the rest of my day? Or do I think of that as part of my fueling? What is your answer to those folks as they sort of think about their performance plates, but then think about the extras around their performance plate? What do you say to them? Yeah, I think that um, we have to remember that we can't just meet our nutrition needs through meals alone for the bulk of it. So those like during training calories are really just, you know, helping to support that training itself. So I always say, no, if we actually calculated out your nutrition needs, um, and obviously I'm giving like really vague portions, but without even going into like in-depth calorie breakdown and everything, I do that on my side, um, with my clients, depending on most of the time, I don't share that information with my clients, unless like that's the data that they're really hoping for. It's in a healthy situation to share with them, but to a lot of times if we were to really calculate it out and just, I think sometimes athletes voluntarily or involuntarily don't realize the amount of carbohydrates and they need to successfully, um, support their activity that they would see those gels fit in just beautifully. Um, if we're really calculating out what their actual carbohydrate needs were, um, so many athletes are floored. Um, and I know that, um, um, you guys have a lot of questions about like carb loading and stuff like that. And a lot of times when I calculate that out for my clients and they see that total number, some of them are like, oh my goodness, I have to eat 600 grams of carbs per day. And that will feel uncomfortable if like on a day you're only eating 150 at a time. So that's always how I know too, an athlete isn't eating enough carbohydrates to, um, sustain their training when they feel like their carb load is just night and day from their normal nutrition. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so let's kind of shift a little bit towards um, race day. And, you know, you kind of segued in that into that carb loading and heading heading closer um, to race day. As we get closer to race day, let's, you know, talk about, um, you know, the week before the race, like where, um, what, what are we looking at then? And I, you know, Julie did a really good job last year of really calculating all of her carbs and being very diligent about it. I usually assume that I'm getting enough carbs because I just like sugar and I like a lot of carby, carby foods, but Julie was really good about that last year. Um, what do you recommend runners focus on, um, you know, the, the week leading up to the race? Yeah. So, a big thing that I see is we're in a taper. And so, um, athletes and runners just get so squirrely with taper. They're just like, okay, what do I do now? What do I do with my food? Um, and so for the first few days of the week, while we're not, ne I'm not necessarily recommending a carb load. That's normally like anywhere between like two to three days before the race. But, um, I'm like, resist the urge to restrict calories. Um, I really encourage my clients to keep eating how they're eating. Um, 
throughout their training. And sometimes that works really nicely because like in my experience, it takes a few days for your appetite to kind of taper off. So, but you're starting to like come down in miles. And a lot of times, you know, people's appetites are still, um, pretty high. And then a lot of times when we cut back on mileage, because we're not constantly suppressing our appetite, actually, they find they're actually relieved that I'm telling them to eat that much because they're hungry because they're not suppressing their appetite. And I always wonder, and I don't know the true mechanism of this, but like, I, at least I tell myself this, I'm like, your fitness is sinking, like you're adapting. So of course there's some changes going on in your body. So if you're hungry that in my mind, I'm like, that just means it work. It's working. (laughs) Just to clarify, when you say your fitness is sinking, you mean you're, you're absorbing the fitness that you've, that, that you've accumulated over the training cycle. So in order for your body to better absorb it, having fuel to support that absorption is really critical during taper. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think too, what it does is it keeps our immune systems high. So, um, drastically suppressing your appetite. Nobody wants to be sick on race day. It stinks when that happens. And so, um, by decreasing your calories, you're also, you know, putting your body like in a um, vulnerable situation. Um, You're not, it's impossible to be getting enough vitamins and minerals if you're like decreasing the total amount of calories you're eating. Um, So I'm like, yeah, just like be in this space for a couple of days where you're not running as much as what you have in the last months and um, eating what you normally eat. Of course, like if you have rest days and stuff like that, maybe you're pre and during nutrition. If you do anything specific to recovery, that's kind of um, null and void, but at least your performance plates and your snacks during the day and in between meals, like that should probably be really constant. Um, and then, um, two to three days out, um, I normally recommend three days out, but there's a few different ways to approach it is, um, starting that carbohydrate load. Um, just like you said, like it takes multiple days to fill up your glycogen storages. That's why I'm a big fan of like taking on a week of training as a whole and not just saying, okay, I have a big workout tomorrow. So I'm going to have a big dinner. Like it takes multiple days to fill those glycogen storage. I actually had an athlete this week that, um, one of her, her runs didn't go well. And so I went back and looked at her nutrition and her carbohydrates actually like three days before was low. And it was good because I could like pinpoint it. And she was like, but I ate a lot the day before. And I'm like, well, it takes multiple days for it to accumulate those glycogen storages. So that's kind of the mechanism behind, um, carbohydrate loading. So in those two to three days, we're increasing our carbohydrates. Um, it's been shown to improve performance, um, by up to two to 3%. And if we carb load while we're tapering, we can almost double the amount of glycogen we can store, which I'm pretty sure when we get to the Newton Hills, no one's going to be upset that they carbohydrate loaded promise you. And how do you define carbohydrate loading? Yeah, good question. I didn't want to get too far down this route if you didn't want to know specifics, but I'm here for it. Um, So carbohydrate loading, um, really simple math equation. Um, For the three-day carb load, take your weight in pounds and divide by 2.2, and then you'll get your weight in kilograms. And then take that number and multiply a constant of eight. And that's how many total grams of carbohydrates per day to have during this carbohydrate load. If you're someone that wants to carb load for two days, then you can do the same thing, convert your weight in pounds to kilos and then multiply times 10. Um, Even for me who I'm a lot like um, Lisa, I'm a really big, I love carbs. I'm always team carb over anything else. Um, Even for me, 
I feel like that's a lot of carbohydrates to eat in two days. Um, so a lot of my clients like kind of more of a three day carb load for the distance of a marathon, really any race over two and a half hours. So some of my clients that falls into a half marathon too. And then more specifically, you take that number and then you can divide it by how many meals and snacks you have per day. So if you're overwhelmed, you can break it down yep. and look at it divided by three or divided by five. So you're not eating or thinking about eating all the carbs in one to two sittings. Totally. And I'm sure you did this really is like you, um, you know, probably got crafty, like with like bagels and sports drinks and things that are an efficient way to get there um, and have fun with it too. Like think about all the things that you love um, in order to kind of meet some of those numbers. So um, yeah, that's what I, I would say, suggest doing. That's what I do with my clients is like, I like find, you know, how much carbs I want them having per meal and then um, distribute some along snacks and bedtime snacks and so forth. Are there any um, particular snacks or meals that you like that have just a good, like the best bang for your carb buck? Like Julie and I, have a, you know, an oatmeal that we really like that's like 50 grams of carbs in just a little cup. So it's got a good bang for your buck, but is, are there any similar, um, you know, meals or snacks that you have that you like? Yeah. So I live like a mile away from this bakery. And so I love their bagels. They're big and doughy. The average bagel is 60 grams of carbs. Obviously this doesn't come with a food label, but I would venture to say it's more. Um, so I normally like travel with those bagels. They're just so good. Um, I really like udon noodles. They're like kind of like the thicker, um, Asian noodles. Those have a lot of carbohydrates. Um, I'm a big fan of graham crackers, which isn't just so high in carbohydrates, but just for snacks, one of my favorite ways, um, and then like smoothies can be a really good way to pack some things in. You can add oats to that or dried fruit, like dates, um, and things can kind of add up quickly that way too. Those are good. I like the udon noodle suggestion. That's a good one. Yeah. They're doughy. Yeah. So let's talk about, um, now we have some suggestions. We, we understand before Boston that everyone needs to be practicing for several weeks, but the week of really be mindful about your carbs. And now you've given everyone a formula and understanding that not everybody can see a registered dietitian specific to them for a specific plan. What steps should a runner take before specifically the Boston marathon? Because assuming one is starting at, let's say 1030, what plan would you give that individual? Yeah. So I always like to work backwards from, um, the start. And I think the thing with Boston is like, you have your race start, but then like everybody has to be bussed out around the same time. And so even if you know, you're starting at 10 AM, you might still have to be bussed out at 7 AM. And so you really have to eat the access to food is before that. And so that's what I think of. Um, so start practicing what you want to have as a meal, your breakfast meal. I think that, um, at a minimum, this is a, I eat two things before I race type of thing. So normally like a meal and a snack is what I recommend. So working backwards, um, normally I would say what's the latest opportunity to eat a meal that you could have before you get on a bus. I would say at least make it like three hours. So you have time to digest. Um, but don't eat at like 3am if you're not running until like 11. Um, so if that's six 30, then eat at six 30, um, choose something that's prioritized around carbohydrates. Um, the amount is going to be different for everybody. Another fun formula is to like three or four hours out, basically, however many hours you have out, if you take your 
weight again and put it into kilos. So um, divide by 2.2. And then let's say you have three hours, then you can multiply times three to get the amount of carbohydrates you need. Um, or um, if you have four hours, then same thing, you can multiply your weight in kilos times four, and that would give you the amount of carbohydrates you need. And then building around that, what about protein fat, that kind of thing. Um, I would say just having small amounts of those things, they leave your stomach a little bit slower. Um, you want it to like, you know, provide some satiety and stick with you, but you don't need to go out of your weight for it to be a high protein or a high fat or anything breakfast. And this is where the practice comes in to kind of know how your body responds to things that can cause some GI distress, like fat and fiber. Um, for example, some of my clients can eat, can meet their carbohydrate needs with oatmeal and they feel incredible. Um, however, it has a lot of fiber and um, that can slow down digestion. And some clients say it stays in my stomach too long. And when I start running, I can just feel it in my stomach. So that's where the trial and error kind of comes in. Um, so wake up, eat your breakfast, use the formula that I use, try to eat at least twice, I would say. So meal and snack is a really good way to think about it. And then um, depending on what time you start. So if you start um, the time you eat your breakfast, like two hours or more after that's where I start suggesting like an, an additional snack. This snack is going to be even more focused on carbohydrates and smaller. Um, so you can use that same formula to say, okay, now I have, you know, an hour and a half. So I can take my weight in kilos, multiply it times one and a half, and then figure out like how many grams of carbs. This is where things like sports drinks, like liquids that, um, you know, leave your stomach a little bit quicker might work or sports nutrition specific products like stinger waffles and things that are really GI friendly or things that you have a lot of confidence around like English muffins, graham crackers, um, applesauce squeeze packs, things like that can be really, really helpful. Um, I think that it's a matter of how close you want to eat closer to race time. So are you someone that would rather wait and have like a gel right before? Or are you someone that would rather get a little bit more substance in? So eat two hours before. Um, I think with longer periods of time, I would encourage that person. So if you have a later start, like a 10, 11, then um, eat breakfast and then have like a good size snack, you know, two hours before you race, opposed to maybe you wake up, you're going to start at nine. So if you are eating breakfast, then maybe a smaller snack an hour out. That's helpful. Um, real quick, just question, because you had mentioned GI distress. Um, what about caffeine? Ooh, okay. So that's, you know, and that's like the morning of a lot of people either will like not drink coffee the week before, and then they get, they're going to drink it the morning of, cause it's a, but, but, you know, and, and of course, you know, we always want to try this beforehand to see if, you know, caffeine is something that gives you GI distress, but what, what's your recommendation on caffeine, especially the morning of the race? I always say, um, nothing new on race day. So if you don't normally have caffeine, then don't have caffeine. Um, but if it's something that's been a part, you're a morning coffee drinker, and then you've practiced with caffeinated gels or caffeinated products, then go for it. There is good evidence that caffeine does is a central nervous system stimulant that blocks that tiredness causing adenosine from binding to receptors in your brain. Um, and that can help with like releasing like adrenaline, non-adrenaline, catecholamines and stuff like that. Um, so it's a very happy hormone. Um, but in research, there's three responses to caffeine. There's performance improvements. 
there's performance decrements, and then nothing happens. And so this is highly individual. Um, your genetic makeup can really influence how you're going to respond to caffeine. Um, and then we know that too much caffeine can cause nausea, vomiting, that kind of stuff, especially if you're someone that doesn't respond well to it. So it goes back to just practicing it. Um, also keeping in mind with caffeine is that it's peak happens an hour after you take it. Um, so if you wait too long to take it, or if you take it, um, right before the race and you don't take it again, then you might notice, um, kind of a dip in that happy hormone feeling. So I would say, don't start what you can't finish. And then also, um, think about like the strategy of the course of when you might want some, some, um, of those, those happy hormone feelings where your preserved perceived exertion kind of goes down. So to that end, a lot of people drink coffee first thing in the morning to get things moving with sure. So that purpose would not be a performance-based caffeine consumption. So if you are starting Boston, hypothetically at 1030, and you have a cup of coffee with your first breakfast, then there's nothing wrong with taking a gel with caffeine, um, theoretically about 10 minutes before the start of the race, which would then kick in um, about 50 minutes into running. Yeah. Yeah. And then at that point, like I would even think of like, do you want to alternate gels? Um, Newton Hills, like, do you want to take a caffeinated gel an hour before you get, or maybe even 30 minutes before you get to Newton Hills? So it's an hour, but you're going to say, I mean, you're there for a minute. So, um, you want to feel, you know, maybe the back end of Newton, um, you want to, um, have that caffeinated feeling. So yeah, I actually do like, I, I tell that to my clients. I'm like, if you're going to drink coffee, then, um, you know, I would, I would strategize caffeine throughout the course, start practicing, which ones you like, are you going to be someone that likes, I mean, more ends 100 milligrams of caffeine that can be too much for someone. Maybe you'll love it. I personally love it. I, it makes me feel incredible, but that might be too much for somebody. And there's other options that are like middle of the road, like 32 milligrams of caffeine, um, per, per gel. So um, let's talk about, we now have fueled our bodies to start the race. Um, we recommend that runners generally stop eating about an hour before the start of the race, with the exception of taking a gel in this corral about 10 minutes before the start of the race. We assume that is consistent with what you recommend to ensure that everything gets digested. Yeah. And I think that like the athlete just kind of knowing, like practicing gels 10 minutes before they start, like workout portions of long runs or just to know that like their GI tract can kind of handle things. Um, so practicing everything, but yeah, I think that's a great recommendation. Okay. So now we we've started and, um, Boston is a competitive field. It's, it's a field where you see all kinds of things, but you assume everybody running Boston is a very seasoned experienced runner. What do you say to folks that are watching their peers running at the same time, and they're noticing that they're not taking as much nutrition as you are, um, or maybe they're not stopping at every water stop because there is hydration at every mile in Boston. What do you say to those folks? And what plan do you prescribe generally to folks running Boston during the race? Yeah. Um, I think with that is like, you just have to keep your eye on the prize and like, remember there's so many distractions and people doing things. And I have a lot of firsthand experience where I'm racing in a field and I'm looking at everyone around me. And I think that they look so much more like quote unquote, a runner and more competitive than I do. And it's just that, you know, a lot of times you realize kind of what I was just saying, like 
they are struggling with their own plan and they would be better off if they had their own plan dialed in. And so I think that like not being sidetracked and being really confident in what you have worked on in your training or you and your coach have worked on um, and just realize that um, they might not have the same goals. Maybe they're out there and they can run much faster, but they're like just wanting to be out on the course for the day um, versus you're trying to accomplish your best on that day. And there's a big difference between racing 26.2 miles and just being out there. Or maybe you're someone that it wants to be out there, but wants to take everything in and get the fullest experience of Boston. And I always say, if you're better fueled, you're going to be able to take so much more in because your body isn't in survival mode. Like your body has this incredible ability to get you to survive. So if you're bunk if you have a cramp, if you know there's something going on where your nutrition is off, it's going to put it at the top list of your priorities to deal with that. So you're not able to think about anything else. And Boston is such a fun, incredible, alive course that you're going to want to remember everything about it. Now, we all know too, you have the brain fog. As soon as your nutrition isn't on point, it's like you can't think. So, you know, just aside from being distracted, you're just going to be brain fogged and, and, uh, and not uh, not be able to focus. Talk a little bit about so you know for a lot of our runners, um, a lot of their anxiety going into race focuses around um, nutrition and GI issues, like worrying about getting nauseous, worried about cramping, worried about um, you know being lightheaded, worried about um, the heat or the cold. Like, how can runners kind of um, we talked you started at the very beginning saying nutrition something we can control. How is other than practicing and knowing what causes GI distress, um, is there anything we can do on the nutrition side to kind of control those, those, um, those fears or those, those anxieties and, and, and put something into place to, to know that, okay, if I start cramping, this is what I, maybe I need to do. If I start bonking, this is what I need to do. If I feel nauseous, this is what I can do. What, what do you, you know, the, the common, the common issues that come up, what, what do you recommend um, runners do to, to kind of combat that? Yeah. So number one, prevent. And then once like it's still happening, um, is I think that like with, with you're right, nausea and then cramps and stuff like that, like just straight up stress and anxiety can cause both of those things. And so I think that, you know, along with that, like I get race anxiety, like I think a lot of people do. And so I always just try to remind myself, and this has nothing to do with nutrition. Um, but I always try to remind myself that like, putting myself out there, I'm going to grow and develop. And even if I don't accomplish my A goal, like I'm going to get better. I'm going to have so much fun. Um, I'm going to get a new skill. If it was a super hot, hot day or just hard conditioned day, it's going to sharpen me for another experience. And it's going to be like something that I remember and um, think about. And that's so true. I think that like so many athletes can look back on really hard performances and then like follow it with like how that better equip them on a different day. And so I think that a lot of times that helps me feel a little bit less nervous. Um, and then just remember like why you started. And so, um, for me, like I started to make friends, like I started running literally to have more friends. And so just remembering like whatever <laughs> that excites you the most, like, I'm like, I'm going to wake up and be around millions of new friends. Um, so like, that's like just some things that can kind of help with stress and anxiety. Also the funny thing, it's like a two-way street that like, it's like your stress that like, you're going to get GI issues. 
which is definitely not going to help your, your anxiety. It's like a, you know, a double-edged sword. Um, so just remembering that, um, I have things that like, you know, race week, I like to do like a lot of like breathing exercises. Um, I like to read a lot. Um, I like to watch some trash TV, just things that make me feel a little bit less stressed. Um, so with nausea, um, Nausea can also happen because um, we have low sodium levels. Um, it can also happen because we're trying to take in um, hypertonic fluids, which what that means is just like, think about like if water is like isotonic, like meaning there's, you know, not a lot going on in there, um, then like, it's just too much sugar, or too much sodium, um, and they're concentrated too much of it. So it can happen for that reason. So maybe you need a break from sports drinks. If you're taking that, you just need a break, like go through an aid station and maybe choose something else. Maybe if you, you can ask yourself, did I take salt at all? Maybe, um, having something with a little bit more electrolyte. So it can be either way. Um, did I take too much caffeine? That can also cause some nausea. Um, did I have too much fatty foods? I guess if you're on the course, that's not really helpful. Um, but the first thing that I would kind of play with is, um, sodium. Um, I had a situation the first time I qualified for the trials that at six miles in, I started having stomach cramps and I literally was just like, okay, plan a of nutrition plan. Um, you have to adapt, like just, you know, and I think I went until the half marathon before I started, um, taking more nutrition. So like, I think that like what I learned was just to be really patient with my body and not panic because that's not going to help. Um, so um, with that, like if you need to take a little bit of a break for something, don't panic. Um, and then when you start to introduce like gels or nutrition again, start with just small amounts. You can kind of like nurse a gel, um, and just try to get little bits and, um, can be really, really helpful and really think about like, did I have a ton of sodium? Did I not have a lot? And either way you can kind of, um, you know, titrate in either direction, um, for cramps. Um, again, that can be caused because of those hypertonic fluids, um, lower GI stuff, a lot of times can be too many carbohydrates. So if you're taking, you know, most of the time, if you're taking more than like three gels an hour, that might be a little bit too much. Um, NSAIDs before you race can cause some cramping. Um, and then we just have to think like all of the blood is going away from our gut to our muscles. So that can kind of cause some, um, cramping too. um, bonking. Okay. If you get to bonking, like you just got to do your best to get nutrition. in. um, I personally think a lot of times when you get there, it's, it's a little bit too late. So taking fuel early and often during the race. But, um, I think that if you're taking that, just doing your best to introduce small amounts of fuel, because if you're introducing small amounts more frequently, you might be able to, from a GI perspective, tolerate a little bit more. So for example, maybe you decide to take a third of a gel every 10 to 15 minutes so that you can get in more. That's a great point. This is all about practice because maybe everyone loves, we love Morton. We talk about that a lot, but perhaps someone tries Morton and they find it makes them a little nauseous in a training run. Well, that's indicative that maybe it would be easier either to parse it out, like you mentioned, or try a different product like choose where you can easily take a few at a time throughout yeah. the, the 15 minutes. Um, generally speaking, do you still stand by um, taking nutrition every 30 to 35 minutes? Is that something that you... Um, tell only specific groups of runners, or do you still find that to be a valuable general rule um, since we last spoke? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I always say anywhere between like for over two and a half hours, anywhere between 60 to 90 grams of carbs. Um, so your average gel has 25 
you know, 22 to 26, it's a range grams of carbohydrates per like little sachet. And so, um, yeah, I think that, you know, that might fall for you every 25 to 30 minutes, regardless of level. Um, that's, you know, levels kind of, um, I mean, it's kind of irrelevant at that point. Um, so thinking about how many grams of carbohydrates, if you're out there for longer than two and a half hours, definitely trying to get 60 to 90 grams of carbs. A lot of runners will tell me, say they're running a 10 minute pace and they're like, well, I only take one gel every five miles. I don't know where the one gel every five miles came from, but that's like that. It reminds me of the 1200 calorie thing, like for no explicit reason, it's just a thing. Um, so I always have them. Maybe we're not ready to take 60 grams of carbs, um, per hour, but trying to get them to increase in their training by 15 grams. So if they're taking, like they're used to taking, like maybe it's 25 grams per hour that we're increasing to 40 grams per hour. And then once we can do that, maybe the next long run, we increase, um, closer to that goal rate of 60 grams. And then where do the sports drinks fall in? Because on a course, we're not mixing our own drink and we, we can't always rely on the exact amounts of carbs in a Gatorade that's been mixed by a race volunteer, no shade on any volunteers, but just actually speaking, it's not consistent. So while elites have their own bottles, um, mere mortals don't. So what do you say to those folks, um, which is the majority of our listeners, of course, in terms of calculating carbs to contribute to the gels that folks are taking every 30 to 35? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think that you have to know how your body's going to respond when you add, remember when I talked about cramping and nausea, that um, having too much concentrated carbs or even like mixing up types of sugar, some can sometimes give you issues. So if you're someone that wants to take the course sports drink, not just water, but whatever they're mixing up, like you said, then practicing that and just realize, Hey, there might be the situation where I get like an overly concentrated cup versus a, um, dilute cup. And so, um, you're kind of putting your hands and your, your, um, future in somebody else's hands. Right. But, um, I think that like, you know, as long as you know that you can handle those things together, or, um, you can seek out, you can take more of your own personalized nutrition. So, um, things like gels choose that kind of thing. Sometimes my athletes will start with like a bottle of noon just to have that in the background. Um, if you're a really salty sweater, then maybe you're choosing gels with more electrolytes. I know a really common thing right now is people love the Morton gels, but they don't have a lot of sodium in the gel. And so, yeah. Um, so they're either finding that they have to supply their own sodium on the course, or they need to get used to um, taking in whatever is on the course and just putting your destiny in, in kind of someone else's hands. Um, I don't have like a very uh, uh, personalized, like what's better. I think that like, whatever you do, just practice it. And then I would say, if you're someone that is a very salty sweater, I normally encourage those people to seek out other gels that have, that's going to be able to kill more birds with one stone for you. What about um, like electrolyte su- supplements like salt stick or endurolites? Um, is that something people should be taking? Is that something, you know, if you're not taking a gel, um, you know, you can incorporate, I know that's what I do is I take Morton, but I also then take salt stick chews. Yeah. Um, is that something that, you know, that do you think those, um, those supplements are, are helpful? I do. I do. I think that like, you know, I'm not necessarily encouraging everybody to take them. I think that a lot of it is kind of knowing what kind of sweater you are. Are you a salty sweater and so forth? The average person 
per, okay, so the average person per hour loses anywhere between 0.5 to two liters of fluid per hour. So that's a range. In one liter of fluid that we're losing on that hand, people can lose anywhere between like 350 to like 2,400 milligrams of sodium. So it's highly variable in, ter I'm, in terms of like how much we're losing. For example, I'm not a very like, like a heavy sweater. And in that, I don't think that I'm like, don't, my sweat's not very concentrated. And so, um, I, I tend to get away with Morton's as long as I'm eating a lot of salty foods that week. Um, you can preload your sodium tubes. So like having things like sports drinks, salty foods, um, the, the few days before your race can really, really help offset your on-course sodium needs, not to dismiss it entirely. Um, but things like salt sticks, that can be a really easy way. Um, those I think per serving, you might know a little bit better is like 100 milligrams of sodium per serving. And so that's going to bump you up a little bit. So, um, I would say like, I like to say, okay, remember a minimum, um, might be 300 milligrams. So maybe you need like three servings of those per hour or whatever. Um, but again, practicing that, making sure that, um, too much or too little sodium can cause GI distress and that that's not going to happen either. Um, so yeah, lots of fun ways to kind of make it happen and create your own little potion. Can, can dietitians do sweat tests? Like if somebody is really curious as to how much they're losing or they're maybe they've had issues in races, can, can, is that something they can go to a dietitian for? Yeah. So, okay. So, um, for everybody can do like a total fluid loss, um, test. So my favorite way to recommend that super simple is like, if you have a scale at home, weigh yourself before and after normally try to make it in a chunk of like an hour of just easy running or whatever, and weigh yourself with no clothes and compare the difference. And for every pound you lose during activity, you need an extra 20 to 24 ounces of fluid. Um, that's to replace it. I guess that you're losing 16 ounces of fluid on the course. So if you lose a pound, that's 16 ounces. And so in that, I would say, Hey, like, you know, that means per hour, we're trying to get 16 ounces in. And so you guys asked about the fluid stop earlier. So if you're getting like two ounces in every cup or three or four ounces in every cup, then like kind of figuring out, do I need to stop at every water station or do I need, can I skip one or so forth? Um, and so I think that step one is understanding how much fluid you lose. And then after that for like electrolyte composition, that's where it gets a little bit more fancy. Um, there's tests out there that you can purchase. Most of them run anywhere between like 120 plus to, to kind of test, which I think that they're expensive, but for my clients that have utilized them, um, they have had catastrophic race scenarios where it was super worth it for them to purchase those tests. I know Gatorade for a minute tried to make like, I was super excited about it, a really um, economical option that was like 25. Yeah, it was so bad. Julie is doing a thumbs down for everybody that's listening. I was so excited because it was user-friendly. And then like, I bought one and I'm like, I'm an easy person to like use that on because I'm not a heavy sweater, but my husband like walks in and he has like salt caked on his face and it just fell off of him. Um, so I'm like, well, this isn't going to work, but they tried. So I'm hopeful for more options um, because a lot of the options out, like you send your test in after you do the test, you have to mail it back to the distributor. And then it takes like a few days or a couple of weeks to get your results back. So I think that we all love instant gratification more than that. <laughs> I have another question specific to Boston. That's a troubleshooting question. And that is Boston is famous for its microclimates. 
So Lisa and I have run many Boston's where the first half of the race, you are a salty sweater dying because it's hot and humid and you are really freaking out because suddenly your fueling plan is not working as well because your body is working so hard to stay cool and reacting to the heat. And then all of a sudden after the Newton Hills, a breeze comes through and it's cold. And all of your sweat is now freezing on your skin. And suddenly your body is in a completely different microclimate. What do you suggest in terms of nutrition, if anything, in terms of how to respond to situations like this, which frequently occur along the Boston course? That's such a good point. Like I have never thought about like dramatic change like that, especially hot to cold. Normally it's like cold to hot. Um, I would say in like either direction during the hot periods of time, if you're not drinking your water in your cup, there's two ways you can look at it. You can, um, pour water on yourself to keep your core temperature down. Even if you feel like you don't need it during the hot time that can help dramatically. Um, even if you're going to drink a little bit and then pour the rest on your head, or you're going to skip, you're going to get a cup at every stop, but you're, um, using the one cup for drinking and one drop, one cup for dumping. Um, so I would say also like if it automatically gets cold, that's a really big curveball. So I would say what can kind of happen once it gets cold is um, in cold weather altogether, we can have um, cold induced diuresis, meaning that we're losing more fluid than what we feel like we're losing. Um, and the mechanism behind that is that your body's trying to keep your extremities warm. And so it all the blood is going to your extremities, not to mention like all of the blood going to your muscles and so forth. And so you actually, um, lose fluid quicker than what, what you would think. And a lot of times you don't feel thirsty. So I would say just keeping up with your hydration plan overall is what I would recommend. Even if you're not feeling thirsty, um, both hot and cold can increase your energy needs. So keep on with like gels and stuff like that. If it's hot, it might arguably be, um, you might blast through glycogen a little bit quicker, but if it's extremely cold, then your body's also utilizing a lot of energy to keep you warm. Yeah. One other thing to think about too, in the cold is um, accessing your nutrition in that at home, especially in 2018, when we had the horrible freezing cold Boston and I couldn't get my, what I had like out of the baggies that I had and I didn't fuel for most of the race. So I think that's something we tell our runners now is practice, you know, putting your nutrition in a way that if it's freezing cold and your fingers don't work, you can get out. But I think you also bring up a good point that physiologically we can also, um, we're still sweating and we're not feeling like, you know, we may not feel like we're, we're losing that, that fluid. So this is, um, you know, a lot of very Boston specific considerations and you've really helped us um, dial in on them and start thinking about them early on in the process, which is, I mean, not early, it's really when we should, should, should be thinking about it. So I think if, if um, listeners take anything away from this, it's that practice start now, even if you don't feel like you need it, your body, you, you do need it for, you know, to prepare for race day and thinking about it now um, in the way that you've helped us think about it is, is really helpful and, and really critical to training just as important as training our bodies and our muscles and our minds for, for the race day is, is training our guts. And I will always remember, and I brought it up with a lot of our runners and a lot of our runners have mentioned it as when you spoke to our runners, um, that diagram that you showed of actually developing those receptors, I think it really hit home for people. And it's not just a, we're not just telling people like, yeah, you need to practice. No, really your body is going to physiologically adapt 
to make you more efficient at processing that fuel. And that's why we need to do it now. So that's something that really hit home for me. And I think hit home for a lot of our runners. So it's real. It's not just, we're not just putting that out there to, to tell people to, you know, just eat more food and, and um, you know, willy nilly. It, there's a, there's a, a method behind the madness and it, and it really does matter for race day. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the biggest thing, and you'll build more confidence. So a lot of times that stress and anxiety will go down because you're more confident that you have a plan reeled in. Absolutely. And also our takeaway from this conversation is that it doesn't matter how old, how young you are, how fast or how slow you are. Our bodies need fuel. We're all out on the same course. We all need to finish the same race. And regardless of the way that one gets from the start to the finish line, one still needs the same types of fueling to be able to successfully achieve it. And we just want you to leave our listeners with one thought. And it was something we briefly talked about before we recorded. And, and that is um, if you aren't already trying nutrition, think about, or trying nutrition in the way that you advise, think about how much better you could be. Even if things are working for you now, think about how much better you could be trying it this way. Yeah. I think that curiosity is awesome of just like opening up of like thinking, even, even if you feel super accomplished, um, there's always that argument of like, what if you could have fueled a little bit better? Everyone talks about how Michael Phelps, um, doesn't have the best diet and, um, they're like, well, it worked for him. I'm like, I'm curious. I'm curious if you didn't, you know, eat fast food all the time, what would it have been like? <laughs> Yeah, it's a great point. So Kelsey, as always, you've been a wealth of information and thank you so much for joining us today. We have no doubt that our listeners will benefit thoroughly from this conversation and hopefully there'll be a bunch of PRs that one can credit to Kelsey Pontius and all of her guidance and advice on that Boston course. So thank you so much for joining us again today. We really appreciate your time. Well, thanks so much for having me. I had a blast as always. Thanks, thanks Kelsey. Kelsey. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryan. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.